I have concluded that one of the songs in the set this morning is uh, definitely one of my all-time favorites that we do here. I just don't get tired of it. I love that song. Um, great, great music, great truth. Matthew 27, if you'll join me, our kids are being dismissed. Any first through fifth graders? Um, let's get right to it, okay? Matthew 27, we're going through the book of Matthew. And uh, what a great uh, set of songs to lead us into today's message. In particular, as was just prayed, I promise you, if, and we know this to be true, if anyone were to invent a God, which billions have done that, that's what we do, um, we come into this world knowing there's a God, and so we usually try to frame him in our minds in a way that makes sense to us, and when we do that, we never get it right. Mankind has never one time gotten it right. Uh, no spurious religion has started up and then found the Bible and found that their idea of God matches what the Bible actually said, says about him. So we have to go to the word of God to find out what God is like because he is not how you would envision him. God is different. You say, I wouldn't imagine a God like the God. Of, you wouldn't. Neither would I. He is holy and unique. Matthew 27. Um, let's do just a quick review. I know that we got some folks that maybe haven't been here in a long time or maybe first time and want to welcome you. We've been going through the book of Matthew. Four weeks ago, we talked about the physical sufferings of Christ at the hand of the Romans. Three weeks ago, we talked about the crucifixion process itself. For the last two weeks, we've been going through these sayings of Christ from the cross. Three were before from 9 a.m. on the cross till noon. Three were there. Four... Hours later, because there was darkness from noon till 3 o'clock, the last four things he says, I believe, I can't guarantee this, if I had to, when I thought about it, I'm going to assume the last four things he says were all spoken probably within five minutes of each other. So the first thing he says before 9 to noon in that time period, he prays repeatedly, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Then, at the request of a thief, one of the two thieves on the cross says, Ask him, would he remember him when he comes into his kingdom? In answer to that, he grants his request by saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not after you go through purgatory. There is no purgatory. You'll be with me in paradise today. Then the Lord, again before noon, looks down and he sees his mother nearby the, the cross. And one of his disciples, we presume, is John. And knowing that he is the oldest son is leaving, he says, Woman, behold your son. Acknowledging John, who was not her natural son, and son, behold your mother. What he's saying is, I'm leaving. You're going to adopt her as your mother. You're going to be my substitute to help take care of her needs. And then, woman, you're going to adopt him in my place. You're going to take him as your son in my place. And then there was this three hours of darkness from noon until three. And then we had this one that we spent by far the most time on of all, this, all seven was the fourth one when Jesus had the like around 3 p.m., still in the darkness, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer to that because the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, tell us, and I've pointed out three reasons, because he came to be the propitiation. The, the, he didn't come to make just a sacrifice to appease God's wrath against man's sin. He came to actually be the sacrifice to appease God's wrath. We also know, secondly, that he took on our sins in his body. He bore our sins on the cross. This is why God has forsaken him. 
And we know that even beyond that, he actually became sin itself. What torment to his own soul to become sin and to bear our sins and to be the sin offering. And so God was pouring out his wrath for especially those three hours on the cross. A whole universe of people, a whole world filled, billions and billions of people taking all of their eternal punishment and boiling it down into three hours in Christ on the cross from noon till three. At the end of that, the Lord cries out loudly, I thirst. They pour some, some wine heavily mixed with water into a sponge, put it on a, on a reed, put it to his mouth. He drinks that, so he's cried, I thirst. And then from that, with his mouth now wet somewhat, he cries out loud that it is finished. Not I am finished, but it is finished. Everything needed to pay for sin is finished. And then another loud cry is another prayer, the third prayer of the seven. He says to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he yielded up his spirit. He tells the Father, I commit my spirit into your care. I trust you. I'm making that step. I'm declaring it. I'm resting in your faithfulness and trustworthiness. You will take care of my spirit. My body will be here, but you'll take care of my spirit. And then he just yields up his spirit and dies on the spot. And that sets up. A very unusual set of circumstances that are about to come out. So here's where we're at. We're going to start reading verse 51 to 56. 51 to 56. Now here, before I read it, I want to go ahead and point something out. This is a a hard passage. If this was a Wednesday night, we'd read it three or four times. I'd have you guys have a sheet of paper and I would have you write. What questions come to your mind as a result of reading this text? Because I had a lot of questions come to my mind. More than I will share. As we read this, I want you to be thinking, wow. Yeah, I have a question about that. Wow. Some of these things I hope we're able to answer, but a good many of these questions we're just not going to be able to answer. I don't have the answer. No one really does. So let's start reading the text. It's a bit unusual, especially the front part. Verse 51. So if you, it's not on the screen, but back up to verse 50. Let's get a running start from there. That last saying, Matthew doesn't record it word for word, but he gives the gist of it. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. Remember, It's not like his life was just barely ebbing out. He had hardly any energy left. And then, is he alive or not? No, he was well alive. And he cried out again with a loud voice and then yielded up his spirit. And then verse 51, today's text. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I believe, this is my opinion, I'm inserting it here, I believe a little bit later, the first part of verse 51 happens first, and then the second part of verse 51 happens second. So the curtain is torn in two in the temple from top to the bottom, and the earth shook. So there's an earthquake, and the rocks were split. So you're picturing the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Tombs are open. And many bodies of the saints, many Bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. That means they had died. That's the New Testament euphemism for death. Many, so here's, these dominoes are happening. Curtain is torn. Earth is shaking. Rocks are splitting. The tombs are open. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. All this, the moment after Jesus dies. And coming, so let me read that again because we want to get the timing here. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection 
you catch it? Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many people. Now back to the cross scene. When the centurion and those who were with him, we know there were at least three other soldiers with him, keeping watch over Jesus, watching to make sure that no one helps him die or no one tries to rescue him from the cross. This was their job. They're doing their job. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, I think that what took place points us back to a previous verse. They see the earthquake and what took place? They were filled with awe. The word awe here is the word we get our idea of phobia. I mean, I'm scared of heights. I know when I'm scared of heights and you start taking me up, my heart starts racing. My forehead starts popping out in sweat. That's what's happening. with Their hearts are racing. There's terror and there's awe. So it's reverential awe and fear has struck these, these people. Why? Because they saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Catch that. The centurion who's been hearing all the trial, he sees the placard. He's been mocking. But finally, after all is said and done, he sees how it all takes place. And then he says, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, Matthew gives us some more commentary. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene. This was a woman that the Lord had delivered her from seven demons that possessed her body among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. So I don't think this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. I will tell you, there's a New Testament name, common names, were Mary and James and Joseph and those type things. Mary is a very common name. And so here's this other Mary who was called Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Joseph. Now, by the way, Jesus' mother also had children by the name of James and Joseph and Simon and uh, Jude. But we don't think that this is talking about her. This would be talking about Mary, the mother of James the Less, another one of the disciples named James, and he would have had a brother named Joseph. And also who's there is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Zebedee's sons are also two of the apostles, and their names are James and John. So there's lots of James, four or five James in the New Testament. Uh, The Lord has a brother. I'm going to get off of that. that. That's a rabbit hole. I'm not going down. Multiple James in the New Testament. This woman here is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Her sons are James and John. And we know from comparing this with another gospel, her name is Salome. So Salome, Mary, got this whole group of women. And we'll finish at that point in a little while. All right. So, boy, if we had time and you were to read that three or four times, what questions come into your mind? Here's some that pop in my mind. Think with me. All right, we have this splitting of the curtain in two. So I would ask myself, which of the temple curtains was torn? Which curtain in the temple is torn? Here's another. What is the significance of this earthquake? Let me ask you, when you think of earthquakes in the Bible, be it Old Testament or as we're looking forward to what's still to come at the end of time, we traditionally think of earthquakes as associated with a specific thing about God. Is that automatically the case here? What is the significance of this earthquake the moment Christ dies? Other questions. Who in the world are these resurrected saints? Are they people that had died just recently? Are they people that died a few decades before? Are they people that were from the intertestament period, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament that were buried there around Jerusalem? 
Are some of them from the Old Testament times? Are any of these people that we would recognize by name who get up and come out? So who are these people? How many of them are there? How come it wasn't all of them? We have lots of questions. What kind of body did they have? Did they come out with bodies like yours? Or did they come out with bodies like the Lord's going to come out of the grave on Sunday with a glorified body? The text doesn't tell us. What are they doing from Friday to Sunday? I don't know if you caught that. What in the world are they doing from Friday to Sunday? That's a great question. Did they die again? Big, more life. Here's new life again. Do they now have to die again a second time like Lazarus did? When they went into the city, did the people recognize them as formerly dead people? Hey, aren't you? Yeah, I thought you died. I did. How is that possible? Well, Jesus, where have you been? Well, let me tell you about it. You can imagine. You can go on and on, all kind of questions. In verse 54, does this mean that these soldiers actually got saved? Is this a declaration of salvation? Why are these women at a distance now? What's the significance of the women? What's, what's the point of verse 56 and, and 55 and 56? What's the Lord trying to tell us in that? So there's lots of questions, and I only have a few answers. So I apologize for that. i tell you what I could do. I could do like a lot of folks and just get up and start arbitrarily, because I think so, and just start saying, this stands for that, and that stands for that. Uh, Jeff Gilreath and I were talking about that Thursday night and how when you teach and preach on the tabernacle, some folks just very dogmatically, now the, the silver here means that, and the blue in this means that, and this little this brown, bronze over here stands for that, and it's like, yeah, where's that in the Bible? Don't worry about where it's at in the Bible. Just trust me. I'll tell you what everything means. I don't want to be that way when I preach. So... There are some things I think we can answer some questions when we get good, solid, biblical foundation. And others we just have to acknowledge, I don't know. You will hear me a few times use the word perhaps, and it seems. And when you hear that, you'll know that I don't know for sure what that means. And we'll get a little more dogmatic on some other things. Would you notice with me three things this morning? I'll go ahead and tell you. When I started, I had five points. And now we only have three. That doesn't mean my message is shorter. Here's what it means. I, I realized the first three... Right? The first three, they're all under one category, right? So I had these things spread out, uh, but really they fit neatly. So we'll just kind of combine them together. Would you notice number one? Special signs accompanied Jesus' death. Special signs accompanied Jesus' death. And when I say this, here's how I want you to think of that. When I say special signs accompanied, I mean immediately the moment that Jesus died, these signs take place. And you've already read them, and they should be in your mind already. And you should already have some questions. Look again at verse 51 and 52. Let's hit that. And go ahead and verse 53. Let's read it again. And so we know what these signs are that happen immediately. So verse 50, he cries out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There's one of the special signs. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So there's another sign. The tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So we have these three things that would have been three points, but today we're going to put them all under this idea. Special signs accompany the moment of Christ's death. And I'm going to go ahead and get slightly ahead of myself because I don't want you to miss it. I'm going to go ahead and say, let's just show the cards right now. It is real clear when we're talking about this curtain is torn in two, what is the concept we're supposed to not miss? We better get this if we, if we get anything else. The point of this curtain being torn in two from the top to the bottom is that we are now have a new kind of what to God. Access. That's right. Access. So that's the key thought we want to get. With that, everybody catch it. We have access to God for eternity. And we have access to God in this life. 
So you want both of those things being brought out. Now let's answer some questions. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Which curtain? I didn't realize this until reading this week. When you were to go in, when we're using the word temple here, we're not talking about all the courtyard. We're talking about the temple structure itself. Something else that I didn't know until recently. This thing was massive. It is not the size of Solomon's temple. Herod, before the Lord was born, like 15, 20 years, started this renovation. Herod the Great started this renovation of the temple. This building is like 16 to 18 stories tall. So it's a massive building. And it had two curtains in it. So as soon as you come from outside the temple into the temple, you are entering what's called the holy place. The holy place. That's the holy, sacred place. But then as you go through that, there's another place that has another curtain in front of it, and that is the most holy place. So if you want to think of it this way, we're just saying about the holiness of God. This represents behind that second curtain would have been the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, and that would have represented the actual special unique presence of God on earth that is the most holy. So if you think of the first room, the whole thing inside is the holy place, But out of the holy place, this is the holy place within the holy place. That's the idea. This is the holy place in all of the holy. That's the most holy. And so I'm going to propose to you based on the wording in the book of Hebrews that I feel very confident in saying it is the second curtain that was torn. It's the second curtain that leads into the holy of holies. Something else I've learned in the last year. This curtain, don't think of it as like maybe 15, 20 feet tall, maybe 30, 40 feet wide. 80 feet tall. 80 feet tall, mostly of blue, super thick. We're not talking about a little veil. We're not talking about, oh, kind of a curtain. We're talking about a massive, very thick, drapery style of curtain. 80 feet tall. Think of a building seven to eight stories tall and really wide, and that's what happened. Now, remember with me. Remember what we're looking at. What time of day did this happen? What time of day? We have, a, we have an hour that we can attach to it. 3 p.m. Remember that this is the, the, the Passover week. Hang with me. If you were from Galilee, we know that the Lord celebrated the Passover feast, the meal, the night before. Because the Galileans would do it there. And perhaps the Judeans, the southern Jews, did their feast on the same night. But remember, the Jews start their day from the evening around 6 p.m. until the following evening. They did from evening to morning and the following day. So it is possible for one group to observe and have their feast on the evening of one day, and the other have their sacrificial lambs killed the next day, and then they have their meal. All that to say, here's how you have to picture it. It is 3 p.m., about a mile away, perhaps a half mile away. Jesus just died on the cross. These people have no clue, but the courtyard... Of the, of the temple, just outside of it, where the priests are operating, they are killing thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of lambs are being killed right at 3 o'clock. And so there's many of them, and the temple would be just flooded with people. All the colonnades and the balconies would be filled with people looking down. as That's mine. That's the one I gave them a while ago. When they finish that, we'll take that home and roast it and eat it tonight. In that setting, there's this massive ripping sound that I believe thousands of people would have heard. In that moment, they would have heard this, and that would have got their attention. And the Lord was speaking through that. If you're taking notes, write the following. This curtain in front of the Holy of Holies served as a barrier to the most holy place on earth. 
And when, again, as Erica pointed out earlier, when we're talking about holy, we're talking about sacred, sectioned off, separated, sanctified, unique. Can I use the word exclusive? To finish that note, let's write this. The temple itself was designed to become more and more exclusive the further one went into the temple. Covered this a few weeks ago, so watch. It begins with this courtyard around the temple. It's the court of the Gentiles. Had you lived in, you could go into the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as you go. Then you go around to the eastern entrance. And after that, Gentiles have to stop. And it's called the court of women. And Jewish women could go in there. It's about 75 yards by 75 yards. I I read that about 6,000 people at a time could gather in there. Past the court of the women was a little small area that Jewish men could go past. The women couldn't come any further. They could go up in the balconies and still see in. But then past the court of the Israelites, the Jewish men, then you're getting into a section where only the Levites follow. Abraham is the first Jew. He has eight sons. The second son is the chosen line, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the chosen line. Jacob has 12 sons. Levi is one of the 12 sons. And by God's will, Levi is the one who is responsible. His descendants, not these other 11, but his descendants are responsible for the tabernacle and the temple. But watch. The Levites, for hundreds of years, have all their descendants. And then there's this family, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And it is Aaron's specific line of all the Levites. Aaron's line is the one that God says, you will not only be Levites, but you will be the priests. And so Aaron's son, he has like three sons and they each have special things. These are the people as you continue to go further and further and further, then you have where Levites can help, but ultimately it's just the priests. The special Aaronic family within the tribe of Levi, only they are allowed to go. And then as you go past the first curtain, some of the priests, when it was their order and their turn, they could go into the holy place. And if you were coming into the holy place, over to your right would be a table for bread called the table of showbread. New bread there every Sabbath day. And because the temple is bigger than the tabernacle, they would have to have multiple candle light stations and they would have to have the oil refilled but as you were to come forward there's this other curtain there's this table this altar of incense that had to constantly be changed out so that incense is filling the air and a certain recipe of spices and ointments to make that and so only certain priests could come in there but as you go further in past this last curtain only one of the, the only one of the levites only one of the family of Aaron only one of the priests and that's the high priest only he could go into this section and that only one day a year one day a year 364 days not even he can go in there and now Jesus is dying on the cross and that curtain has split and torn in two y'all help me out If the curtain is torn from the top to the bottom, that very clearly tells us what? God did this. Write that note. The fact that the tearing of the the curtain was from the top to the bottom clearly makes this an act of God. And so I believe there's all these, these Levites, and the priests particularly are killing animals. Levites helping where they can as much as they're allowed, but ultimately the priests are the ones having to do this. And then you have the Jews just lining up and filling up the temple, all the courtyards and all of the balconies. I believe thousands of people would have heard this, and all of a sudden, this is a clear act of God. And those that were in the area would know that it was from the top down to the bottom, is the way it happened. So now I want to go back to the idea of the earthquake. Y'all help me out. 
When we usually think of earthquakes in the Bible in the Old Testament and also looking forward to the end of time, we associate earthquakes with the what of God. Judgment, wrath, anger. God's angry. He's wrathful. Judgment is coming. Now I'm asking you, is, does that always have to be the case? Does every earthquake, is, it, is every earthquake expressing and announcing the wrath and judgment of God? I want to say, no, it is not. Do you remember, remember back in Exodus 19? The children of Israel had come up out of Egypt, and they were around nearby this mountain called Sinai. And they're going to receive the law. And the mountain is trembling and shaking. And only Moses can go up. That mountain was not that, hey, God's already angry and wrathful at the nation of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt. This was a great time. What this was, the mountain was shaking because he wanted to get everyone's attention for a major announcement. What's about to happen is going to be a new thing. And there's going to be a new covenant. It was new at 1500 B.C. 1,500 B.C., that was a new covenant. It was a new phase. And God let the mountain shake and smoke to show that this is new. I want to get your attention. So I believe, this is my opinion, because we're not told what the significance of the earthquake is, I believe the earthquake was a way of getting everyone's attention to show them that what is about to happen is bigger than what happened there on Mount Sinai. It is reversing what happened there on Mount Sinai. Now, watch. For 1,500 years, when we're, what we're reading now, for 1,500 years, millions, I mean tens and tens, probably hundreds of millions of animals have been sacrificed symbolically for sin. But now here we are 1,500 years later, and the Lord is saying there's a new day, there's a new age. We're entering a new relationship with mankind where God was hidden and veiled and separated and there was a barrier and he's unapproachable. Only one person, one day a year can go in there and have this close relationship with God. Now God is saying that it has changed and he's opened it up. Now, again, if you're taking notes, write the following. God allowed the temple to stand for 40 more years. He allows the temple to stand for 40 more years. And I want to say here's the reason. He allowed for transition. Why? This is important, guys. He lets the temple stand for 40 years because for, for 1,500 years, they've been told this is what you do. And they were not always obedient, but that was what they were called to do. Do you guys understand 1,500 years is six times as long as we've had a nation? More than six times as long as we've had a nation. Of the United States. Six times long. And they had Bible. They had the Bible telling them to do these things in that temple. And so God allows the temple to stand for 40 more years. But to complete the note, write the following. Jesus' death on the cross outside of Jerusalem immediately. I didn't have that word there. But it immediately rendered all that was taking place in the temple as obsolete. It rendered the altar obsolete. It rendered the whole priesthood all the Aaronic Levitical priesthood, obsolete. All of the animal sacrifices, obsolete. We don't need it anymore. Why? Because Christ just died outside of the city. And God was announcing that with an earthquake and with the tearing of this curtain from the top to the bottom. J.C. Ryle words it this way. He says, the rending of the veil proclaimed the termination and the passing away of the ceremonial law. Later on he writes, now catch this, the true high priest had at length appeared. The true high priest. Israel had like 86 or maybe as many as like 90, 91 high priests. 
None of them were the true high priests. Ryle is correct. He says the true high priest had at length appeared. The true lamb of God had been slain. So if you were to ask me, I believe the Old Testament is, is, is giving way to the New Testament, certainly at the birth of Christ. But it's just dawning there. If we want to really say, when did the Old Testament pass away and transition to the New Testament? Apparently, this is the moment when that curtain is splitting too. Because just seconds before Jesus died on the cross, there's a new relationship with God. And it is only through Christ. That's the message. So, Jeff Gilreath asked me Thursday night, and I wasn't even thinking of this. We just exchanged for just a moment. I was talking about this message and how many questions I had and how it wasn't really sticking and I got a long way to go on it and he said yeah how long do you think it took them before they sewed that curtain back up (laughs) knowing these Jews that were at that time I dare say it didn't take them long at all they probably got a team quickly start sewing that thing back up as if it wasn't an act of God but they still had to deal with it they still had to reason with it and they had to think about how did they explain that many would have heard it And the word would have spread. Wait, when did this person, he claimed to be the Christ, he died at that. That's the exact same. They're going to have to deal with this. I believe this is why, this is one of the reasons in Acts chapter 6, verse number 7, the Bible says, and a great, this is a report card that Luke's going to give us in the book of Acts, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think because eventually they're just like, we can't put it all together. This is clearly God doing something. Our leaders can tell us what they want. This is of God. And that really was the Christ. I'm spending longer on this point on purpose. Hold your spot here. Go with me if you would. Hebrews. And I I don't know if this got conveyed or not. Um, I hope it did. If not, um, back there in the booth, can we do Hebrews 10 is where I want to go first. We're going to go make sure we're doing Hebrews 10 first. And then we'll go back to chapter 4 in just a moment. All right. Hebrews chapter 10. In a moment, I'm going to look at verse 19. Do you see that? But for now, here's all I want you to focus on is the first word, therefore. Because you're not going to see the next verses. If you have your Bible open to Hebrews 10, you have an advantage. Those of you watching at home or wherever you're viewing this, you want to get your Bible in some form and get to Hebrews 10 because you need to see what we're going to read behind this word, therefore. Look at verse 11. Let's go there. Hebrews 10. Look at verse 11 because it's going to explain the therefore. Now look at verse 11. The writer of Hebrews says, And every priest, I'm going to read it slow because I want you to get it. And every priest, the temple was still there. We're getting close. This was written at almost the end of the 40 years that God allowed it to still stand before the Roman government came in and their army destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. God allowed it to to remain for 40 years. So they're still doing all the same things. Verse 11 says, The writer says, and every priest stands. Catch that word, stands, daily. Remember the word stands. Remember the word daily at his service. Don't you remember the word service? There are no seats in the temple. What are they doing? Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Notice the last part of verse 11. The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The writer of Hebrews, knowing that this is still going on over in Jerusalem, says all that they're doing, those animal sacrifices can never take away sins. Verse 12. But here's the comparison. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What's he doing? 
waiting. Remember, they're standing. They're daily, repeatedly offering the same sacrifice. They're serving. And they're serving. They're offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. What's Christ doing? After he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Watch verse 14. For by a single offering, he, remember theirs can never take away sin, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 14 tells me once you get saved, you are forever saved. He has once and for all perfected you for all time. All those other sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was good till next year. It's like, boy, we hope God puts his favor upon the nation another year. Hope he doesn't kill the high priest as he goes behind the veil and pours out the blood on the mercy seat. Do you see the superiority of Christ's offering and his priesthood? Now, verse 19, here's the point to us. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, which means brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter... The holy places by the blood of Jesus. This morning we sang about what a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name. The name of Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. The holy, the holy place and the holiest of the holy places. We have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now to get to God, you don't go through this man-made curtain. You go through the flesh of Jesus Christ. And here's his takeaway. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Don't go before God. Hey, I, I get it. I get it. Some of you have the same background, the same Bible teaching and preaching. You, you grew up under some of the same Bible teaching and preaching I did. And it'll leave you here for the rest of your life. Boy, I'm terrible. Well, something's really disconnecting here. I'm terrible. God hates me. God is so disappointed in me because I did that. I didn't do that. That's not how God wants us to live. Look at verse number 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what's available, a relationship with God. Flip back now, chapter 4. I want you to see one verse there, chapter 4. We don't have time to go back to verse 14. You'll want to do that on your own. Look at verse 16. Same context, same idea. Because of what Christ has done, the Hebrews writer in Chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive, what are we going to receive? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's the big takeaway. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's, let's wrap this point up. Through Christ's death, if it says anything, this torn veil and this torn curtain tells us that there is now access, eternal access to live with God in heaven, not because some animal died sacrificially, symbolically in my place, but because God sent his very son to die on a cross. I can now have a relationship with God through Christ, by Christ. I'm coming to God with Christ. I'm Having this relationship with God because I am in Christ. All these prepositions are true. 
And then it's this idea of not just we have this eternal relationship with God, but we have this daily relationship with God that affects this very life, this life. So here's what I want to share with you. Amen. Today, all around the world, billions of people. I see my friend, Brother Harold, slipped in again. Last week we spoke in the, from India. What a massive country. So billions, over a billion people. Guys, do you realize that billions of people today will offer prayers that they think are talking to God, most of which will not be heard. So I want to be clear as I finish this point. No one has any right whatsoever to think you can go talk to God. God is holy. You don't think I can just, you can just, I'm just going to go talk to God. You do not do that by yourself. You better go with Christ, through Christ, by Christ, because you are in Christ you're taking notes i'm not going to have time to really like i wanted to this is so important this what you're about to write is so important to our christian life when we pray in jesus name so in other words the only people who have true access to god are only those that can call god their father and the only ones that can call god their father are those who put their faith and trust in god's son When you put your faith and trust in God's Son, you become the child of God. He's the Son of God by nature. We become the sons of God by adoption, relying on what Christ has did on the the cross. So now the Lord has taught us to pray in His name. What does that even mean? I know some people come or they go to this church or that or they listen to a person on radio. Mike did it just this morning. Mike literally, as he was praying, what, what you're about to write, he did this very thing. This is what we do here. Write it down. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not a slogan. It's not a verbal stamp. It is a conscious confession. And this conscious confession runs throughout the whole prayer. It's not just quick little saying at the beginning of the prayer or, again, a verbal stamp at the end of the prayer. It's a constant hovering confession on our part. We're confessing to ourselves, and we're confessing to God. What is the confession? It's a conscious confession that I cannot come to God apart from Jesus Christ. I can only come by Christ, but that's only part of the confession. Here's the other part. I can only come by Christ, but because of Christ, I'm going to come boldly, and I'm going to come confidently. You say, Jeff, that sounds like a paradox. I use the word consciously on purpose. When you pray in Jesus' name, if you don't pray this way, you need to start praying this way. Consciously think about the ramifications of that phrase, what we're doing here. God, I'm coming to you in Jesus' name. And what that will do is build your humility in your prayer. God, I can't come to you except with Christ. I, I can't, but he gets me in. But it also builds your confidence and your boldness. God, I can't come except through Christ. There's the humility. But at the same time, it seems like a paradox. But because I do have Christ, I'm coming with confidence and boldness and expectation. I'm planning on things happening when I come to you. There's the blend. And that's what coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you don't do that, you need to change how you pray. Would you raise your hand? If you honestly in your heart of hearts, won't you raise your hand? Do you believe God, we sang it this morning, do you believe God is almighty, omnipotent? Do you raise your hand, raise your hand if you believe, you say, I I really believe he is the almighty, omnipotent, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. We can't even dream of something that's going to really test his power. 
Raise your hand if you believe that God is the creator and owner of all things. I believe that. You say, well, Jeff, I own something. No, you're a steward of what God has given you. You say, well, that person owns a lot. They're a steward. God is the ultimate owner. Now, one more question. Raise your hand if you believe that God is a gracious giver and has invited and even called for his people to come ask him for things. Raise your hand if you honestly believe that. Now, about everybody just went three for three. Here's what you just confessed. I believe God is almighty. He has all power. He owns everything. He owns all the resources, and he's a giver, and he asks me and commands me to come and make requests of him. I believe if you truly in your heart believe that, then you will pray. If your life, if you're like, I believe those things, but I don't pray, you don't really believe those things. You go to Walmart to get good, some goods, right? You're like, we need groceries. Where are you going to go? You go to Walmart or Aldi's or one of the other places. When you need stuff, you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot because they sell stuff. Verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If I really believe, and if you really believe, he is omnipotent and gracious and he has all the resources, why would I not regularly go to him? How foolish would we be to neglect prayer? I preached on this three weeks ago, two weeks ago on the third. I had like four or five people said, hey, what's that handout you were talking about? Most of you already have it. You need to learn the verses that deal with the access promises of God. Learn them and employ them. Now back to Matthew. We're still in the first point, but we'll be much more brief on these second two thoughts. Actually, I've kind of already covered the earthquake. I think it was to get attention. I don't think it was for judgment. So now would you notice with me, and I'm not going to spend as long as some might like. I know our curiosity would love us to delve and delve and conjecture and all that. That's not really my favorite style of preaching, so I don't want to skip this, but I do want to hit some of it as much as we can. Look at verse 52. Actually, the middle of verse 51. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also, also were open. So we're still talking about there's these special signs that directly accompanied the moment of Christ's death. So the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And then Matthew just stops it. All right, I want to give you four beliefs that some people have. So here's group number one. Here's one group. They don't even believe this is real. Matthew's the only one that covers it. And for that reason... Here's their attitude. Matthew's the only one. This sounds a little weird. It's a little awkward. Uh, doesn't sound theologically the proper order of things. Sounds like they came to life on Friday, and Jesus comes back to life on Sunday, and so pff, throw it all out, throw it all out. The problem is this, all the manuscript evidence says this is real, this is that, this really happened. Here's a second group. They believe these people came to life and came out of the tombs and went into the city all on Sunday. So people struggle and they play around with where to put the commas and the, and, the, and the periods. And where you put commas and breaks and periods will affect what this text says. So there is one group, catch it, nothing happened until everything happened on Sunday with this group after Jesus' resurrection. Here's a third group. Group number three, oh no, no. These people were animated, reanimated. They came back to life and they came out of the tomb. And they just kind of all hung around the tomb area from Friday to Sunday because, hey, 
It's Passover season, and Jews aren't going to be going up to the cemetery area. They don't want to be defiled for the, for the feast and for the rest of the week. And so these people were animated in the tomb. They came out of the tomb, hung out a while for a few days, a couple of days, and then on Sunday after the Lord's resurrection, they went into town. But as what I'm reading, and that may have been what happened, but if you move the commas around, but I, I am going to go what has been put before us here, and I've also checked another translation or two, and this seems to, here's what happened. They're animated, they come to life, the rocks are split, and the tombs are open. That to me was a hint. So you ask me, Jeff, what's your opinion? Do you think they had glorified bodies or bodies like these? I don't know. My hunch is they had bodies like these because the Lord didn't need the tomb open. The angel comes and opens the tomb so that people can get in to see where Jesus was. He had a glorified body. He didn't need the rock removed. But these people, the rocks are split and the tombs are open. But it seems to me the wording is that they came to life on Friday around 3 o'clock. But they don't really come out of the tomb and go into the city until Sunday. And so then we ask ourselves, what are they doing from Friday to Sunday? I don't know. What do you think? I'm clueless. I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and I will admit, boy, it would be a lot theologically smoother if it was that other way. But this seems to be what happened. They're animated. And they're each just staying in their own tomb. And then Sunday, when the Lord's resurrected, here they come out. And then they head into the city. And I don't know if people recognize them as they're formerly dead. Again, it depends how old they were. Maybe, oh, hey, you're back. It's great. Kissing their wife and their kids. Others are like, yeah, I'm Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah, nice to meet you. You know, one of our famous prophets was named, I'm him. Like, what? Yeah. Who knows? So a lot of questions. Now, quickly, we can go into a whole lot of what do you think about this and what do you think about that. Can we just boil it down? Like we did with the first one where we said it's about access. Is your mind engaged? What's the main takeaway? Look at verse 52. Verse 50, Christ dies. He yields up his, his spirit. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Write this down. The main point of verses 52 and 53 is very simple. Very simple. Jesus' death produces life. That's the point. The order of all of that, you have your opinion, I have mine. We can guess what, what happened at this, that, and all these questions. The main point is very simple. Jesus dies. Again, we have a paradox. There's so many paradoxes around the death of Christ. For us to be healed, he has to be wounded. For us to live with God forever, he has to be separated from God. For us to have righteousness, he has to become sin. Many paradoxes. Mankind at its worst is seen at the cross. God is viewed as his most glorious at the cross. So many paradoxes that we miss. And, and here's another one that we're talking about. The point is, wait, death produces life. Yes, that's the point. The resurrection of these saints and their Coming out of the tomb and making appearances, all of that is a sign, and a sign for people to comprehend. And here's what the sign is to tell us, that Jesus' death broke the power of death over all the people who have died believing God's promises. Notice how I worded that. Because I'm not saying all these people, they didn't die believing in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They didn't know about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
They died believing the promises of God. Everyone who dies believing the promises of God, here's what we find. The death of Jesus is so powerful, it breaks the power of death over those who die believing the promises of God. Which for us today, we know the promises are all heaped on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. All of them for us are tied to Christ. R.C. Sproul words it this way. And then I'll be done. We'll move to the second thought. It's much more brief. Sproul says, we do not know whether this resurrection was like that of Jesus. Who rose with a glorified body. Or was it more like the resurrection of Lazarus. Who was given a second term of life on this planet. But who ultimately died once more to await the final resurrection. So we don't know. Did they have a glorified body? I couldn't tell you. I leaned toward they had physical bodies like ours and they would have to die again. But the point is, it doesn't matter. We don't know the answer to that. Write what Sproul puts down for us. Write this down. Here's the main takeaway. In his death, Jesus removed the sting of the grave so that death now is not a punishment for sin, but a transition to a better dimension. Death is not now a punishment for sin. It's a transition to a better dimension. I read that a couple times before I signed off on it. The more I thought about it, like, yeah, wait a minute. I don't believe this earthquake was a sign of God's wrath and judgment because he had just poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus. And so for us, death now is not about, now I'm going to punish you for your sins. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. Sproul is right. And by the way, he's already experienced this. He's... He's in this world dead, but he's alive in the next. Here's what happened. Death for a Christian is literally a transition to a better dimension. Who do we think of? We think of Philippians chapter 1. You remember it? Paul is in prison, and he's writing to the Philippian church, and he says, man, I don't know if I'm going to get out or not. I think I'm going to get out of prison. I think that's God's will, but I'm kind of torn. If I stay here on earth, get out of prison, then it's more ministry for you, and that'll be a needed thing. God will use me to minister to you. But I would rather, if it's up to me, I would rather go on and be with the Lord, which is What's the two words? Far better. Last thought. Paul, who had been to the third heaven and had seen it when he wrote that. you got to understand this. At this point, Paul has seen the third heaven. He's seen it. He can't live by faith anymore. He's seen it. He's writing a letter saying, I'm in prison. I might get out. I might not. If I do, that will be great. God will let me keep doing ministry. If it's up to me, I'd rather go on because that's far better. Here's all I'm going to say. If we ever truly, like I said a while ago, if you really believe God is omnipotent and gracious and the owner of all things, then you will pray. Here's what I'm going to say. If we ever really grasp the concept that the next life for a Christian is far better, you will not fear death for you or your saved loved ones. You will not fear it anymore. It'll be like, oh, I'm about to die. I've done it. Mom's about to die. She's done it. It changes everything. If you're afraid of death for you and you have a loved one you know is a Christian, man, you need to change the whole way of thinking. Something's wrong. Number two this morning, look at verse 54. We'll notice Roman soldiers declare Jesus' identity. I think it's my packet here. I'm going to probably have to get a new cord. Roman soldiers... Declare Jesus' identity. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him 
centurion. He's over 100 soldiers. Remember that Pilate had about 600 soldiers at the beatings of Christ, the sufferings. This would have been one of them. He would have been one of six centurions in that courtyard. This centurion has been assigned for Jesus' crucifixion. He may even be over the other two. Apparently, the crucifixion of these three men is his responsibility and his band of four soldiers. When the centurion and those who were with him, that tells me it's also the other soldiers, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, terror, and said, truly this was the Son of God. John MacArthur writes the following. He's going to say seven things that perhaps these soldiers did. Guys, I can confidently tell you the last five they did. He writes, so the first two, I don't know. MacArthur writes these, quote, these soldiers probably participated in Jesus' scourging. Let this sink in. The scourging. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. These soldiers probably participated in Jesus' scourging. In placing the crown of thorns on his head. I don't know. But from here on, I'm sure. In taunting him. And in beating him with the mock scepter. We know that they took turns coming bowing, mocking. Hail, king of the Jews. And then spit in his face and take the reed out of his hand. Hit him over the head with it. These guys would have definitely been on that. MacArthur continues. On Golgotha, they, this group right here in verse 54. They nailed him to the cross. They nailed him to the cross indifferently gambled for his garments and jeered at him while he hung there in agony. We know they did that. They jeered at him, made fun of him. They're the ones who nailed him to the cross. And they're the ones callously, while he's right there listening, dying just a few feet away. I want the tunic. No, I want it. You get that and let's gamble for it. But now they've changed. They've really changed. What made them change? I want to offer the following. I think... You understand, they're opposed to Christ, but now by the end, this truly was the Son of God. What's made them change? I'm going to offer my opinion. I believe it was a combination of things. I know it was one main thing with another. I'll point that out in a moment. I believe it was the trial. We we get this guy and that guy. Is there uh, our phones are going off, I guess? Hopefully nothing major happening. Um, if we can, put our phones on silent. Uh, so a combination of multiple things. I think the trial caught his attention. These other two robbers, man, they, those guys die all the time. I know about their case. They're guilty. This man is on trial for what? For being the king of the Jews and being one of six centurions. He probably has very close access to Pilate. He knows that Pilate has declared this man innocent. Then there stands the placard over the Lord's cross in three languages saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Add to that this. What makes them change their their mind and their heart? There's this darkness that sets in. This never happens, and it's for three hours. Then there's this earthquake, and it's unique timing. Add to that these things. Jesus, they're hearing this. They're just feet away. He's speaking to God like nobody ever has. He's talking to God as if he knows him intimately. I remember when Jesus prayed one time, the disciples said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? I'm thinking, what was so unique? It was how he talked to God. These men are hearing this firsthand. They're also hearing his prayer for them as his tormentors. Literally, as they're driving the spikes in, Father, forgive them. They know not. This never happens. 
Then him giving these comforting words to this other thief. Who does that? It's every man for himself. But this, this man is totally unique. And yet if you hold your spot here, look on the screen if you will. It'll be there. Mark tells us something unique. I think it was all of those things. But Mark in chapter 15 verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. In this way he breathed his last. He said, this, truly this man was the son of God. So let's put it all together. I believe that it was all of those things, but ultimately the main factor was this. This man has enough life in him. He's full of life, and he's crying out loudly this statement and that statement and that statement. And then the next moment, he says, Father, I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit into your hands. And then he just on his own dies. It's not like he was dying and barely alive. He was full of life one moment, and then he decided when he dies on his own. He's never. He's been to multiple crucifixions. This man is saying, he's taking... No one has that much control of their life. This man has full authority of the whole situation. And then you add in the moment he dies, then this earthquake just happens to hit. He wouldn't have known about the, the curtain tearing or the tombs opening. But all of this gripped him and made him fearful. One more thought there, and it's Luke chapter 23. Listen to what Luke writes about this man in verse 47, because it's important. This is an addition. Luke says, now when the centurion saw what took place, catch it, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. When he saw what happened, how it all went down, the earthquake, but how he died, and then his conclusion is, he praises God and says, certainly this man was innocent. So what does that tell you? Did you catch it? He's fearful. And his, his partners are fearful, reverential awe. He ends up declaring that Jesus is innocent. He ends up declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, and he praises God for it. So now I'm back in Matthew. If you were to ask me, Jeff, question. You asked it earlier, what's the answer? Is this verse 54 mean that these soldiers got saved at the foot of the cross? I don't know 100%. My hunch is I think this does mean they got saved. I think this is the point of why it is in there. They've had a total about face. There's a repentance that has taken place. If that is so, and I'm underlining the idea of if, then I want you to write these two thoughts down. If they truly did get saved, if this is a salvation confession, then these men represent two groups of people. They represent, number one, the new influx of Gentiles who would come to put their faith in Christ. I'm one of them. They would represent this new influx of Gentile. Can't tell you they got saved. Seems to me like that's the purpose of this being in the Scripture. Multiple Gospels include it. So it's, this, it's including the new, it's, a, it's like a foretaste of the new influx of Gentiles that did not exist in Old Testament times, and now they're coming in. Remember chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you they're going to come from the east and the west and sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's talking about us. And then the second group I think they represent, by the way, this is not me. This group is not me, but it might be you. I believe they represent those who at one point in their life opposed Jesus, but eventually took another look, an honest look at all the evidence, and then they end up putting their faith and trust in Christ. They started out opposed to Christ. You say, Jeff, are you trying to say you were never opposed to Christ? Guys, 
I wasn't saved until I was nine. That means I was unsaved until I was nine. I did not believe in Christ until I was nine. But I remember, it's not like I heard about Jesus and then I was antagonistic and went around telling people critically and opposing Jesus. I was just indifferent to Christ. But there are some people that are in this world and they hear about Jesus and they are critical and opposed and are against. But then later on in life, they hear more and more evidence. And then finally, that brings, the evidence is overwhelming. He really is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Savior. And then they trust Him and get saved. I don't know if that's anyone in here or not. Uh, next time I'm preaching, I'll probably be borrowing a good bit from a man named Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is someone who was opposed to Christ, hated Christ, made fun of it, but ultimately he looked at the evidence and he came to Christ. And that could be what these men are pointing to. Then our last two verses this morning. Faithful women supported Jesus. Faithful women supported Jesus. Notice verse 55. There were also many women. So there's our first thought. We're going to see three names, but please don't in your mind as you're picturing this scene at the cross, don't just picture three women. There are many women. Only three are named. Mary is named. Mary Magdalene is named. Mary, the mother of, she's, she's identified, so the middle woman is identified by her two sons. The, the last woman is also identified by her, by her sons and her husband. The first woman, which we said had seven demons cast out of her, she is not identified by a husband or by children, tells us that she's a single lady. She's a single Lady who ministered to Christ. And isn't it interesting that the single woman is listed first? It doesn't always mean a lot in order, but I notice Peter's always listed first in the listing of the apostles. Here we find the single, you single girls, you think, man, what's wrong with me? I don't have a husband, blah, blah, blah. It may be God's will that you stay single. Maybe if God's very will for your life. Or it may be God's will that you get married. Both are great. Both are great ways to serve the Lord. Quick thought. Write this down. Women were not required to attend the Passover. Jewish women are not required to attend the Passover. So why are these women even in Jerusalem to begin with? They're there because they are continuing to do what they've been doing for quite a while. They are continuing to minister and provide practical, necessary needs for Christ, for His ministry. They've been doing it for a long time. Luke is the first one who mentions it back in chapter 8 of his book, verses 1, 2, and 3. He talks about there's this group of women. Apparently some of them are wealthy, but not all of them have to be wealthy. But there's this group of women who just use their hands and their feet and their resources, and they follow the Lord around, and they help him in his ministry. I'm sure the disciples knew how to cook, and I'm sure some of them were better cooks than others. But I dare say that most of the time there was a group of women that were feeding 13 men a couple of times a day. And whenever they were at some place and they had a had a house, they no doubt help take care of all the housing needs and whatever else may be needed, anything to help the Lord. Listen to what I'm about to say. Please get this. These women served the physical body of Christ because that's what he had on earth. You say, boy, I wish I would have lived back then. I wouldn't mind being one of those women who went around and ministered to the body of Jesus, his physical body, doing these things to help him. Well, it just so happens that the body of Christ is still on earth, but it is not his physical body. It is his spiritual body, and it's other believers. Christians, we are called the body of Christ. You say, I want to serve Christ. I want to help him. Then serve his body, other believers. You want to be like these women? Serve other believers. That's what they did. Why are they there? They're just continuing to do what they've been doing for years. 
Now, why are they at a distance? John 19 tells us and uses some of the same names. Earlier, before noon, before the darkness, they're close enough for Jesus to talk to his mother. Mary Magdalene was also there. They're close, and now they're at a distance. Why? Well, I can authoritatively tell you I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. Bible doesn't say. Can I offer this? We don't know how dangerous it was for the followers of Christ. How dangerous was it? I don't know. I know Peter felt it in the courtyard. Peter felt it so much he lied that he didn't know Jesus. Not to make excuses. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. If there was danger for Jesus' disciples, I'm pretty confident it would be more dangerous for his male disciples. And if it was dangerous for male followers of Christ, you got to know it's especially dangerous for the 12 who were known to be following him all the time. And I recognize that one. He's one. Quick, get him. I'm not making excuses why they're not there. I'm just offering that it was probably more dangerous for male followers, especially those who are constantly identified with him. Why are these women at a distance? Maybe it became uncomfortable and threatening and they retreated to a safer spot. I don't think so. I don't think these women were intimidated to leave where they were. I think there's another reason I want to offer you two. Could it be, perhaps, notice that's my opinion, perhaps they retreated to a more distant location because they wanted to avoid adding more shame to the Lord's cross. He's naked. He's naked. And that's going to just add more shame to the cross. And so maybe it's better if we go over to this other spot. Or could it be this? And this is probably the one that I would lean to the most. Maybe they just can't take it anymore. So much agony and suffering and listening to the sounds that are coming from the cross. And they just can't bear it anymore. And so they're taking all they can. But they don't want to leave. And so they've retreated to a further distance from the cross. So we wonder. And as the Lord's looking past the jeering, mocking crowds, and he looks at them, I'm, I'm assuming he had multiple emotions. He's encouraged, and yet he's sorrowful because he sees their sorrow, and it makes him sorrowful. And yet he's encouraged because that little group of people, of his acquaintances and women, they represent all of us who are ultimately going to be saved by his cross death. And so it keeps him going, support and encouragement. And so I finish this morning by asking you this question. What's the significance of these verses? There were many women there. The women were there, looking on from a distance, ministering to him. Is our takeaway this morning, is the point that God is making that women are braver than men? Is that the point? Women are, the women of the Lord are braver than the men of the Lord. Is that the point? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. I don't see it in the text, and that's not always the case. That seems like I can't preach that. That is not always the case. There are many men who are extremely brave for the Lord, and they died burning at a stake, or by stoning, or beheaded, drugged behind horses, crucified. So it's not always the case. All right? So is the point that women inherently love Jesus more than men? Is that the point that's being made? Again, I don't believe that's the point that's being made because it's not in the text and it's not always true. Some men love the Lord supremely. They live for Him very faithfully. Is the point 
that women are more faithful than men. As all, just something physiologically in women. Is that the point? I don't see it in the text. And again, that's not an a authoritative statement that we can make. Now, let's be honest. Anybody who's been paying a lick of attention over the last 2,000 years knows that as a whole, women do far more Christian ministry, not more, far more Christian ministry than men. Women in the church for the last 2,000 years have done far more Christian ministry than men do. But that's not always the case. So, Jeff, what do you think it's here for? I'm going to give you my opinion. Here's what I think is happening. For 27 chapters, Matthew is focused on Jesus, his teaching, his healing, his death. He's focused on his 12 disciples. He's focused on his opponents. He's focused on the recipients of his teaching and the recipients of his miracles. And those people, again, their opponents, a lot of attention has been given to them. And now finally Matthew is saying, oh, by the way, to round out the picture of what's been going on the last two and a half years, there's been this group of ladies who've been there faithfully the whole time, and they're still here. If you're writing notes, write this thought. These women were not called to be apostles. That's important. They're not called to be apostles. And yet, they followed Christ with equal or greater loyalty in their calling. That's important. They're not called to be apostles. There were 12 of them. Judas blew it, got replaced by Matthias. There's only 12 apostles, and then there's this one who comes later as a root out of dry ground who's also an apostle, and that's Paul. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail because I'm about to start talking about Barnabas and such and I don't have time, so I'm going to stop right there. These women are not called to be apostles, but they're equally, if not greater, in their loyalty to their calling. So here's what tells me something. Jeff, what chapter was it after the Lord said, hey, you, leave your nets. Hey, you, leave your money table. Follow me. When did he go and tell these women, hey, you, use your resources, your money, your hands, your feet, your skills, and come, follow me. I don't find it in here. Apparently, they just wanted to do this, and this is our calling, to serve Jesus with our whole life and our resources. They're using their own money. He's not making any money. These 13 guys are living off of these women's income, and they're, they're ministering to them. And that also tells me this. These women don't have to give an account. Well, we weren't apostles, but they had to be faithful in their calling. They're not going to give an answer for apostles. Apostles answer for apostles. These women had a different calling, and they were faithful. The other day, Mike Sturgeon and I were talking about Paul. And he's my favorite in the New Testament outside of the Lord. I mean, we just start thinking of all the stuff he has going on. It is so intimidating. And if I think about it, I feel like just the, the, the littlest nothing person. I can't, I'm not doing one one hundredth of what Paul did. I'm not going to give an account for I had to be like Paul. No. God gifted Paul. God's gifted me with these few gifts over here. He gave him a lot. You are going to give an account for what God has given you. You're not going to give an account for anybody else. You will give an account for what you have done with what God has given you. And then lastly, I believe this is in the text because it illustrates three things about these women. Three important things. You could add more, I'm sure. Three things are standing out about these women. Number one. Their practical support of Jesus' ministry was crucial. I know Jesus could have made food every day like he did with the 5,000, but he didn't choose to always use miracles. He used practical 
hands and feet and resources. And their ministry of practical helping of Christ was crucial. Number two is a very important one. You, you, it's so simple. You're, you're going to write it, and we're going to lose the concept. It's so simple, we're going to lose the concept, I'm afraid. Why is this listed? Guys, they're just faithful and loyal in their love and devotion to Christ. These women were faithful and loyal in their love and devotion to Christ. Do you all understand how confused they would have been? This is very confusing. They follow Jesus, and this does not look like what's supposed to happen. Do you understand? This is bad times for these women. They've been, they've been spending their money and using their hands and feet and time and energy, giving their life for him, and he's over there hanging on a cross. This is not supposed to be part of the plan. No matter how confusing and how difficult it was, they never stopped loving him and remained faithful and devoted and committed. We talked about that Wednesday night on Christ's demand that we love him. Part of our command to love him is the agape. I am committed and devoted even when the feelings aren't there. But he also wants the feelings. He wants our affection and he wants us to delight and enjoy him. He wants all of it. These women had all of it. They delighted in the Lord. They had affection for the Lord. And they were devoted even when it was confusing to them. I'd, I'd no sooner had to leave my driveway this morning till I was reminded of a woman who I'm pretty sure used to go to church, and now she doesn't. I can name you three or four or five others that used to be right here, but about two and a half years ago when the pandemic hit, they stopped coming to church to be cautious, and I totally get that, but they haven't come back, and to my knowledge, they're not going anywhere else. These women were not made out of that. These women are committed no matter what. They're in it for the long haul. Don't ever stray from your loyalty to Christ. He's worth everything. They get it. We need to look like them and follow them. Jeff, what do you think this is in here for? Well, I can tell you it's this last point. The others were just kind of the dressing. It's real simple. Theirs was a first-hand witness. That's why they're listed. Theirs was a first-hand witness. Do you see it? You see verse 55 and 56? Right as Jesus died, there were also many women there looking on. Hey, real quick, before you close it, look at verse 61. It's not on the screen. Look at 61. They watched him die. Verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They're watching him buried. Now look at chapter 28. They watched these. These are the only people that fit this category. Only they saw it all. The disciples didn't. These women saw him die. They watched the whole burial. They know it's that tomb right there. It's not that one, that one, that. It's that one right He's in that one right there. And then now I can't read it all. It's verses 1 through 10 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And you can go home and read the rest. And all of a sudden, they're going to encounter. And then they're going to have a story to tell. We saw him die. We saw him buried. We have seen him come back to life. They have not a, hey, I hear that Jesus is alive. I hear that Jesus died on the cross. I hear that he was buried in a tomb and a big stone was rolled. No, no, no. I can tell you, I, girls, we saw it. Those boys weren't there. We saw it. We saw that and that and that. How's that happen? Because they're faithful. Would you stand? Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We come to you through Jesus. Father, would this church right now unite in prayer, coming 
with Christ. You are exclusive. Lord, we don't have any right to talk to you by ourselves, and we're not going to try to talk to you by ourselves. We're coming with Christ and by Christ and through Christ because we're in Christ. All of us who are saved here, whether church members or not, all of us who are saved, Lord, we come to you through Christ to say thank you for our Savior and our Lord. He is the Lord. He is the King. And He's the Savior. We're confessing that we have access to you because He died in our place. He was our sin bearer. He became sin for us. Father, we believe that and we celebrate that this morning. And Father, I pray, my prayer, Lord, one of the main takeaways this morning, would you make us a kind of people who are more convinced than ever that you do have all the resources and you have all the power and you're filled with grace and you're inviting us to come to you. And so, Lord, I'm making a request. Here's my request that I expect to be answered because I'm coming through Christ. I'm asking you to grow our church in true prayer. Grow us in true prayer. May it become more and more dominant part of our day. May we not just die saved. May we die having already known you and growing in our knowledge of you, the true knowledge of you. Change has already been prayed this morning. Change our false ideas of you, Lord. We want to know you, and we can know you through Christ. And then, Lord, as we leave this morning, may we be challenged by this group of women that were servants, worshipers, lovers of you, faithful and loyal, and who had a story to tell because they could say, I know this. I have experienced this. Father, would you put a first-hand witness in our mouth that we know you are a real God and your son is alive because we talk to you as a real person and we sense you talking to us and guiding us and answering our prayers. It is undeniable. Whether the world believes it or not, give us a powerful first-hand witness like these women. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.